0: We ask that you would open the eyes of our heart this morning that we could see wonderful things from your word. Lord, we need to hear from you. We're here for you, Jesus. We just pray that you would continue to inhabit the praises of your people. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. You can have a seat. Good morning. How are we doing? Good. All right. It's raining. Haven't had that in a while, it seems like. Grab your Bibles. Go to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. This is where we were in the Bible reading plan this past week. I will jump right in and read this before I make any other comments. Ephesians chapter 3. is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. This was, in a, this was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Pray with me one more time. Father, again, we thank you for this morning, and we thank you for your word. I pray that you would accomplish far more abundantly above all that we could ever ask or think this morning. We thank you for your great love for us. And we pray, Lord, that your word would have its intended effect. Pray that you would please give me words to speak in the moment that I need it. Help me to make your word clear for your honor and glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So, Second Peter chapter 3 At the end of the last letter that Peter ever wrote, he knows that he's about to die. Uh, Just as he's kind of closing out the letter, he gives us this little detail um, into some of the things that were going on in the early church. And he says this, he says, count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul, who wrote Ephesians and many other books in the New Testament, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him. And He says this, as he does in all his letters when he speaks of them on these matters, there are some things in them, referring to Paul's letters, that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. Have you ever had a hard time understanding exactly what Paul was saying? Yeah, you're not alone. Peter thought the same thing. And so did many other people. But, as he says, it's the ignorant and the unstable that twist them. And so God called Paul to do what he did and to write the letters that he wrote so that it would engage our minds and so that we would have to wrestle with it. Because there's a, there's a blessing in the wrestling that we have to do with exactly what Paul is saying. Now, I've said before, as we've been going through Ephesians, that Paul is the king of the run-on sentence, okay? He would flunk every English or literature class um, that we would hold because he just interrupts himself all the time. And this morning is no different, and it's important that I just kind of show you a little bit, kind of like from a, from a, a literary perspective, what's going on here so that we can rightly understand what Paul is talking about because what he's talking about is really, really important. It's really, really important and actually really, really practical and helpful for us as well too. But I want you to, I want to just point out some kind of technical details here. I want you to look at the little phrase at the beginning of verse 1. For this reason, I, Paul, then he says a prisoner of Christ, and then I want you to jump down to verse 14, which we did not read. And he says again, these same words, he says, for this reason. Do you see that? For this reason, verse 1, for this reason, down in verse 14. Now what's happening here is that Paul is getting ready to say something and what he's getting ready to do is he's getting ready to pray and we're gonna look at that prayer next week in verses 14 through 21, okay? And so up in verse one of chapter three, he says for this reason and then it's like he's getting ready to pray but then he gives this like interrupter in all the verses 2 through 13, he wants to quick throw in this little detail. And if, for those of you guys that have been going through Ephesians with us, like you remember chapter 1 verses 3 through 14, it's all one long run-on sentence. Chapter 1 verses 15 through 23, all one long run-on sentence. Chapter 2 verses 1 through 10, it's all long, one long run-on sentence in the, original, in the original language. And this is the same thing again. Chapter 3, verses 2 through 13 are all one long, run-on sentence, and Paul has some details in here that he wants us to get, and this section is unique. It's very unique to Ephesians, because we've not talked about this yet, but Ephesians and Colossians, two of the letters that Paul wrote in the New Testament, are very unique from the rest of Paul's letters. They're what um, uh, commentators call circular letters okay and what that what they mean by that is if you read the book of corinthians for example or the book of galatians if you imagine yourself like in the early church receiving that letter like those letters don't make a ton of sense if you're not part of the Corinthian church and you're reading the Corinthian letter. Now we study them from the outside, trying to understand what was what was happening back then. And there's obviously things we can we can glean from it, but we want to remember that the Word of God was originally written to a real people in real time, place, time, space history. Um, so, for example, in the Book of Corinthians, he's he's rebuking one guy for. Um, for sleeping around. He's rebuking them for misusing the spiritual gifts. He's rebuking them for not taking communion in the right way, okay? They're very specific um, scenarios that he's speaking the gospel into. But Ephesians and Colossians are, are built more as like a theological treatise. They're kind of like this, this big theological um, uh, ideas that Paul wants to throw out there And that he wants to give to the church in order to train them uh, in doctrine and in uh, in understanding. And so at the end of the book of Colossians, you get a little bit of insight into this. In that um, he tells, at the end of the Colossian letter, he says, after you've read this letter, he goes, I want you to pass it on to other churches. And then I want you to read the letter that I sent to the Laodiceans. And, and And so there were these circular letters, you following me? That Paul would send around. And Ephesians and Colossians are two of those circular letters that are a little bit different. They were t- meant to be read not just by, by one individual group but, but by, um, or one individual church, but by all the churches Okay, and, and are more theologically centered and based in, in doctrine and, and in teaching. Now, I say all that to say that in verses 2 through 13 of chapter 3 here, this is like the one place in the book of Ephesians where Paul digresses from that and he gives us some very personal insight into some of the things that he was going through um, and kind of gives us a little bit of his personal testimony and talks a little bit about his personal calling. Okay, So he digresses from the big theological treatise that he's speaking about in regards to Christ being the head, we as the church being the body, and he just talks about um, his calling and what God has called him to do. Okay? And that's what we're primarily going to unpack. But, one more thing here. And again, I hope I'm not boring you with the details, but this is important. Verse 13. Okay? Look at verse 13. All that he's going to say in verses 1 through 12 comes up to this one point. Okay? This one practical implication. And it's this. Verse 13. So, he says, in light of all I just said, in all my ramblings and run-on sentences, inspired ramblings, okay, he says, so, I ask you not to lose heart. Don't lose heart. That's the one thing in all that Paul's going to say and we're going to unpack here in verses 1 through 12. His point is this, so, don't lose heart. I want to tell you guys, I don't, I don't think that there's anything more important that we could be talking about this morning as followers of Jesus Christ than this one very practical implication that Paul has for us. Don't lose heart. How many of you are ever tempted to lose heart? Yeah? I've seen a lot of Christians want to lose heart, especially in the last year or two especially in the last year or two. But Paul's going to tell us that we are not to lose heart. We lose heart so easily. And kind of the big idea that I want to show us this morning is that the reason that we lose heart is because we are not working from the same motivations that Paul had. Paul understood some very central, powerful all-consuming theological truths and spiritual realities that when he was faced with difficulty and the difficulty in this context is that Paul is writing this letter from prison, which is why he says in verse 1, I, Paul, a prisoner of the Lord. And then he says, I ask you, don't lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, speaking of his imprisonment. The reason those things did not cause Paul to lose heart is because he understood who his God was. He understood who he was. He understood his part in this story. And man, when these things came at him, it just didn't faze him. It just didn't faze him. But honestly, it, at least in, in my lifetime, I have never seen such worry, anxiety, Almost like an unraveling in people's souls. And, I've, and, and I'm right there with you. I've seen it in my own soul. As I have in the last couple years. And there's been a lot going on. There's been a lot going on. Um, at least in my lifetime, we've never had a kind of a worldwide pandemic. I feel like uh, there's always been political upheaval, but um, not in the way we're going through it in our country right now. In my opinion, at least. Um, And there's been many, many reasons to lose heart. But as Christians, we are to have a different hope. And we're not to lose heart. And I just want to tell us from the outset this morning, guys, that there's no excuse. I understand. I understand that things are hard. And I understand that you might have personal things in your own life that are hard. But we have a hope that has overcome the world. And not just in a general sense. See, I, I think one of the things that, that we do to ourselves as Christians is if I had to explain or, um, or say what I think the primary motivation is as to why we think Christians aren't to, loo- aren't, aren't to lose heart is we think we shouldn't lose heart we know that, and then we motivate ourselves like this. We go, when, when we're discouraged or when things are hard, and we say, don't lose heart, Eric, because good Christians don't lose heart. Right? We say, don't, don't get discouraged because good Christians don't get discouraged. Don't, don't be anxious, don't be worried because good Christians, they don't get anxious and they don't, and they don't get worried. Do you understand how that doesn't work? Are, are you following me? Like, we we know that we shouldn't, but we don't know why we shouldn't. Because we're not grounded in these massive, eternal theological truths that are the reason why we should not be discouraged. This is why I want to tell you, folks theology matters, it matters a lot. And theology is not just for theologians or for guys in seminary or for pastors or for missionaries. The Bible was given to all of us so that we could stand, so that we would not lose heart. So I want to give you four reasons this morning why we should not lose heart, no matter what comes, no matter what happens. Nationally, on a world level, personally, we all have personal trials and difficulties that we're going through, but I want to give you four reasons that I believe Paul gives us why we should not lose heart. Number one, we are part of a divine plan. We are part of a divine plan, a massive divine plan, an eternal plan that God has been working out from before the foundation of the world. Okay, Paul says here as he begins his digression here, this long interrupter, verse 2, he says, "...assuming that you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ." And listen, "...which was not known to the sons of men in other generations." okay this doesn't mean that the plan this this mystery that he's speaking of he's going to speak a lot of this mystery this mystery is not something that's a mystery now this is something that was a mystery in the past okay and paul's saying that this mystery has now been revealed here's what he says he says it was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the spirit Okay, so he's talking about this mystery and that it's now been revealed, but he still hasn't told us what the mystery is. Here's what the mystery is, verse six. The mystery is that the Gentiles, who are all of us probably in this room this morning, unless you're a national ethnic Jew, that this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel, okay? So Paul's saying, This divine plan that we're a part of was started in God in all of eternity past, okay? He's going to go down, jump down to verse 8 real quick. He says, His grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery. Listen, hidden for ages in God. This was always God's plan, but it was hidden in the Old Testament before Jesus came, under the Old Covenant. But it's always been the same plan. And the plan is that God is creating for himself a bride, a body, and a family from every tribe, tongue, language, and nation throughout the whole world and throughout all of history. That's it. Now that's a really big theological concept. But Paul's saying, one of the reasons, again, that this all comes back down to verse 13, don't lose heart. Paul said, one of the reasons I don't lose heart while I'm sitting in prison is because I am part of a divine plan. I'm part of a divine story. And listen, if you're in Christ this morning, so are you. So are you. This plan is that God has wanted forever to create a bride for his son. Now this is gonna, guys, we're so focused on us and we have such a hard time not thinking that we are at the center of everything that what i'm about to say will probably make sense but it it, it'll probably sound a little bit weird to us okay is that you have to understand the center or the pinnacle of the story of redemption isn't just about our salvation It's about God's glory. It's about his glory. And the reason that we sit here this morning, and many of us can say that Jesus Christ is our Lord and Savior, is because in all of eternity past, before anything was created, there is what theologians refer to as the covenant of redemption. Okay. Now you will not find the term covenant of redemption in the Bible, just like you won't find the word Trinity in the Bible, yet the concept of the Trinity is all throughout the Bible. Same way you won't find the term covenant of redemption, but this is the term that that theologians refer to to speak of the, the counsel of God in all of eternity past, where they made a covenant amongst the Trinity with themselves, that they were going to create this world. They knew that Adam would fall. They knew that we would be sinful and that Christ would eventually come and redeem all things. But the essence of it is that in all of eternity past, it pleased the Father to find for His Son a bride. And that bride is the church. All people throughout all time who have trusted in Jesus Christ alone for their salvation. And our salvation is swept up into this even more glorious purpose of God delighting in the Son to find Him a bride, a body, and a family. And because the Father delighted to give this to the Son, you and I have salvation. Does that make sense? It's not ultimately about us, folks. It is about, and and this is, we, we don't talk like this, but it is about the joy going back and forth between the Trinity, between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And, And Paul says here, I'm I'm a part of this story. We're a part of this story. Again, I want to show you, verse 6, that the Gentiles, that we are fellow heirs. Members of the same body. And again, I keep saying bride, body, and family because throughout Ephesians, you'll see all these, but they're they're like totally intermingled and interwoven. So for example, bride is not mentioned here, but just if you jump over to chapter 5, You know, this is where we say husband and wife are one flesh because Paul talks like this. He says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having washed her by the water of the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. So do you see how he's bringing together bride and body? He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Because we are members of His body, we are bride and we are His body. And down in verse thirty-two in chapter five, Paul says, "This mystery is profound." (laughs) And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. John chapter seventeen is referred to as Jesus' high priestly prayer. Um. Jesus here, we, it, it, we have a copy of what Jesus prayed in the garden right before he's arrested, right before kind of the pinnacle of his earthly ministry where he's going to die and then, of course, be resurrected. Listen to how he prays to the Father and listen to this idea of the covenant of redemption in all of eternity past. John chapter 17 and verse 1 says, When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him, the bride. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Listen, Jesus prays, I have glorified you on earth having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. The father in all of eternity past purpose to get a bride for his son. The dowry, the bride price, as you'll read about often in the Old Testament, the way they used to do arranged marriages. The dowry price for the bride would be the son's precious blood. A bride that's made up not just of natural descendants of Abraham, but of those, both Jews and Gentiles, that though they, we were dead in our trespasses and sins, And we're filthy in our iniquity. That we have been made alive now by grace through faith, as we've been learning about as we went through Ephesians. And we have been washed, we have been clean, we've been made holy. And we, along with countless others throughout history, from every tribe, tongue, language, and nation, are now a part of this glorious mystery called the church. His bride, his body, and his family. Jesus goes on in John chapter 17, he says to the Father, I have manifested your name to your people whom you gave me out of the world. Down in verse 9, he says, I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Down in verse 20, he says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's us sitting here today, 2,000 years later. Jesus prayed for us in the garden. I do not ask only for these only, but also for those who will believe through their word. That's us. Now that was a lot, a little, and I, we could talk a lot more about that, and I hope I didn't bring more confusion than clarity, but guys, we're a part of a really big divine plan and story. And for just a second, if I could say, um, just show how this this plays out all the time in our world, is there's actually been a lot written about this, okay? Um, but I don't have time to go in and unpack everything. But, but th- let's just talk about the news, our news media, ABC, NBC, CNN, Fox News, all of them, okay? One of the things that's happened um, over the last couple decades is that I think that, um, that the news media has figured out the power of story and the, pow- the, the power of story. And so now, when they report on something, and you'll see this all the time in, these, in the news cycles, okay, if you just step back and look at it, it is they don't just want to report facts about a story. They want to suck you in and make you a part of the story. Does that make sense? So they don't just want to give you facts about what's going on. They want to draw you in and make you decide which side you're on. You a Republican or you a Democrat? You pro-Trump or you anti-Trump? Are you a vaxxer or an anti-vaxxer? Are you a masker or an anti-masker? Are you for drawing out of Afghanistan or are you against drawing out of Afghanistan? And this, I mean, that's just a few really recent ones. Like, it goes on and on, they have these news cycles trying to pull us into these little stories and when we identify with one of these sides in the stories, that they're, that, that, that they're feeding us, it then becomes a part of our identity. Well, yeah, you know what? Yeah, I, I am. I'm, I'm pro-Trump. No, I'm anti-Trump. I'm a pro vaction, I'm anti-vaxxer. I'm pro-mask. I'm, I'm anti-max. We should do that. And it robs us of the identity that we've been given in Jesus. Guys, we are part of a much bigger story. We are part of the bride, the body, the family. The story that was established in all of eternity past. It, it, it's, and, and I think the reason we don't believe it is because we're so easily satisfied with these other smaller stories, these, other more, these less significant narratives that we allow the world to suck us into and bringing it all back to verse 13. So I ask you not to lose heart. The reason we lose heart is because we don't understand the story we're a part of. Don't let somebody else give you another story that's not, that isn't the one that Jesus has bought for you. Amen? It's unbelievable, the hope that we have. That's just one reason. One reason why we should not lose heart. We are part of this divine plan, set in motion all of eternity past. God does not have a plan B. He is working everything according to the counsel of his will. Everything. Everything. It's what chapter 1 said, if you remember that. Everything. Secondly, Paul understood that he was pulled into this divine plan by divine power. By divine power. Okay? And if we've been saved, then so are we. Look at verse 7. Okay? He says, Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace which was given to me by the working of his power. Do you remember who Paul was? Paul was formerly Saul. He was not the greatest missionary the church has ever seen, the greatest church planter the church has ever seen. He was formerly a persecutor of the church. I'm going to read very quickly from Acts chapter 9. But Saul, who... Later becomes Paul and is writing Ephesians. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, I heard a voice say, there was a, they heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, "'Who are you, Lord?' And he said, "'I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you must do.' The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose to the, from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him to, into Damascus. For, and for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Saul is on his way to continue persecuting the church to arrest Christians, and Jesus stops him in his tracks." And God saves him sovereignly and calls him to be an apostle. That's what Paul is referring to here in verse 7 when he says, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. Another reason we we should have hope, folks, is that this plan, we've been called into it by the power of God. For every one of us here this morning, there was a moment because all of us are born in sin. This is what Ephesians, remember Remember the whole book here, okay? But literally just a sentence or two ago, um, in Ephesians chapter two, verses one through three, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. All of us were by nature objects of wrath. But if you are alive in Christ this morning, you've been made alive in Christ by the power of God. That God has saved you through the preaching of the gospel. And so if we're a part of this divine plan, and we've been brought into this divine plan by divine power, whom shall we fear? Of whom shall we be afraid? This is why Paul speaks the way he does also over in Philippians, which is another letter he wrote from prison, just like he's writing Ephesians. And Paul says, you know, know, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I'm to go on living in the flesh, then I know know I'll have fruitful labor among you and the other churches, but if they kill me, well to depart and be with Christ, that's better by far. You can't stop a guy like this. You can't stop a guy like this who has this type of hope, who absolutely refuses to lose heart. But how was he able to respond to such difficulty with such hope? It's because he knew the story of redemption that he was a part of. And most of us go throughout our days and difficulty hits our lives and we go, oh man, that's discouraging but I'm a, but I'm a good Christian. Okay, so I'm going to smile and huh, how how you doing, brother? I I'm, I'm okay. But we're not. Because we've forgotten that we're part of the divine plan. We've been saved by divine power. <clears throat> There's no reason to be afraid. One of my one of the one of the goofiest little stories in in the gospels is after Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. Uh, there are big crowds now following Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes and the r- rulers of the law, they, they obviously don't like this. And so John chapter 12, verse 10 says, So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Now, so they're planning to plot Jesus, or, or they're, they're, they're plotting to kill Jesus. But then they're also now plotting to kill Lazarus. To kill him whom Jesus just raised from the dead. Good luck with that, right? Well, just as Lazarus would have had no reason to fear their threat of death because he had just been delivered from the very thing that they were threatening him with, right, so if you're Lazarus, you're like, bring it on, man, I don't know, whatever. Um, In the same way, Paul had no reason to fear the threat of losing his ministry or his reputation because he didn't start it to begin with. You know, guys, in, in, just very practically, like in terms of Mercy Hill, and in terms of, you know, the, the ministry here, like he, there's so much written about in church land about how to start a church and, you know, how you got to do it. And I've told you guys, I get emails, you know, somehow I got on these email lists. I can't get off of them. But it's basically, you know, church planting in a box. They'll send you like a little starter kit and you, I mean, it's, it's weird. But anyway. Like, but here, here's what it all comes down to. Either God's in this or he's not. That's it. Either God is in this or he's not. Either God is, is, is for us, either, God, either Mercy Hill is a local church that's a part of the global universal church. Either he is or he's not. And if it's not, it, we'll, we'll fail. Okay? But if he is, then we're going to go on and we're going to see fruitful labor. That's it. Okay? Um, we have nothing to fear because we didn't start this we're not the ones we're not the source of this we're the ones that started it was God so Paul understands he's part of a divine plan he's saved by divine, by divine power, so are we he, he also has and this is oh man we could spend the whole morning on this and I'm, uh, I, I got to talk fast here, but he, he also understood that he was part of an eternal purpose so this divine plan that he was called into by, by divine power it had an eternal purpose okay an eternal purpose and this this is incredible like we we almost have no grid for this i don't know if you guys got this this past week or understood what this meant when, when you were reading this this past week but let me start in verse 8 again he says to me though i'm the very least of all the saints this grace was given to preach to the gentiles the unsearchable riches of christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God, who created all things. Now, now look at this, verse 10. So that, so that, so that, again, eternal purpose. Why, why did God call us into this divine plan by his divine power? So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to who? To the world around it, not just the world around us. I mean, he talks about that in other places. But to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. You think you have no purpose? You think you have no, no reason for, for being? Like you think your life doesn't matter? God is through you if you belong to Christ and are part of the church. God is glorifying his name through us to angels and demons, both good and bad. Okay? Good angels and bad demons. We're just bad angels, okay, that fell. He is glorifying his name to them through us every single day. What? That's what he's doing. Now listen, I want you to make sure you're reading this Properly? Because many people read this and they go, Yeah, you know, it's it's uh, we, we gotta make sure we live right, you know, because you know we, we want God to get glory, you know, through our lives by, by living right. And hear me, I'm I'm for living right, but I, but I want to tell you something. The, he's not saying like if we get everything correct, if we do everything perfectly, if we never mess up, and I'm not telling that we should aim for not being perfect or not being holy but it's not about us. God is doing this today, right now, through our lives, by his sovereign power. Angels and demons are marveling at his manifold wisdom. That word manifold, it's found no other place in the New Testament. In classical Greek, it's it's used to describe flowers, to describe ornate crowns, to describe woven garments. It's literally the idea of multicolored. God is manifolding his multifaceted, multicolored wisdom to spiritual beings through our lives. And the way that he's doing that is through what Christ accomplished on the cross. You might be asking the question, you should be asking the question, Well, how how exactly does he do that? Let me just give you a couple of examples. The, The list is endless, and I believe that someday in all of eternity we're going to worship God and he's going to unravel for us the glory of what he packed into our finite little lives. He's going to unpack the glory of that throughout all of eternity. But let me just give you a couple of the big ways. That again, not he just will do it someday, but he's doing it now. It all comes back to his grace. And again, look here. To the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places, and then verse 11, this was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. So again, it's not about us, it's about him, what he's done, and that he's doing in us and through us. But I've been saying that we are bride, body, and family. What are some of the ways that God is glorifying his name to these spiritual beings? Well, we know that when Jesus was crucified, that Satan was somehow involved. We know that Satan entered Judas as he left the upper room and went and plotted um, with the high priest to come have him arrested on on a natural level. So there was things happening, natural plotting, but there was also spiritual plotting. Satan was involved. Satan being one of these spiritual beings okay. that God is glorifying his name to. But think about it. Think about the wisdom of the cross. That in terms of bride and body, you kill the bridegroom, what does it create? A bride. Christ is head, we are body. You chop off the head, it only creates a body. We are family. You kill the perfect older brother, it only creates a family this is the wisdom of god this is the wisdom of the cross you follow god is doing this through his grace through the gospel god's purposes will not be stopped folks not on earth and not in heaven another way that god is glorifying his multifaceted, multicolored, manifold wisdom is the fact that we have this letter of the Ephesians. That Paul is in prison. No doubt Satan was involved in some way in having people arrest him. Yet in prison, Paul is going to write this letter that we're now studying 2,000 years later And we, along with countless others over the last 2,000 years, have gained strength and hope and have been encouraged to not lose heart. Why? All because of the eternal purpose, the wisdom of God through the cross. One more reason why I think Paul tells us we should not lose heart. is because we also have undeniable access, okay? Not only are we part of a divine plan, been, given, been saved by supernatural power, been given an eternal purpose, but we have undeniable access. Look at verse 11. It says, this was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. Then verse 12, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him boldness and access with confidence through faith in him and this idea of boldness and access with confidence again this is this should stand out in stark contrast to the man who's saying this writing this from prison why do you put somebody in prison you're trying to limit their freedom you're trying to limit their access Paul says, nobody can stop my access. I have boldness and access with confidence. To whom? To God. To the throne of grace. This is why Hebrews chapter 4 says we are to come boldly and confidently before the throne of grace to find mercy and grace to help us in our time of need. Can you put that picture up there, Avery, the one picture I gave you? You yeah, have buddy? Okay. This was this past spring. Uh, somebody called me, and uh, very last minute, said they had some Cleveland Indians tickets for me. And so uh, Hannah, and there were four tickets, and Hannah and I called Zach and Katie to see if they wanted to last minute go up to the game with us. Now, I don't know if you can see where we're standing, but man, there were literally no better seats in the house, okay? It was the very front row, almost right behind the dugout. Um, Uh, They were just really, really good seats, like very front row, couldn't get any closer access, okay, to the field. Now, this was by far, I've not been to like a ton of Cleveland Indians games, I've been to, you know, a handful over the years, Um, but usually I'm sitting up in the nosebleeds. You know what I'm talking about? Okay, now I don't know if you've ever done that, in fact, well, I've heard that people do this, let me say it that way, but I've heard of people That get tickets up in the nosebleeds, and then maybe about uh, I don't know fifth, sixth, seventh inning. If it's not if it's not a packed house, maybe the game's not that exciting. They'll try to sneak down to these type of seats. Anybody? Yeah. Now, I've heard that if you've ever tried to do that, you know you're kind of like. You're kind of being sneaky about it, right? Because you don't actually have access. You don't have a ticket to the front row seat, but you're just hoping that you know halfway through through the game or so that uh, nobody's going to notice, and you're just going to be able to kind of sneak down and get that and get that better access, right? Um, hoping that you don't get busted along the way as you eat your hot dog, uh, but. On this night, because we had been given tickets that gave us permission to go right to the front row, I wasn't sneaking around at all. I was like, yeah, man, you know, I got my ticket. You know, I was walking with a little swag, you know. You want to check it? Go ahead, check it. It says I'm seated right there. That's where I'm going because I got access. Folks, I'm telling you, most of us live our lives coming before the throne of God, going, Can I can I come in real quick? Cool? Hope nobody sees. We're skittish about it. We're, we're, we're not sure if he really hears us. Paul says, because of what Christ has done, we have been given boldness and access with confidence to come before this throne of grace. And the devil, the world, anybody that wants to throw us in prison like they did Paul, it does not matter. They cannot stop the access that we have to almighty God who is working out his eternal plan, has brought us into that eternal plan by his supernatural power and in whom we now we now stand. We cannot be stopped. And so, all those things, we're part of a divine plan, a divine story divine power, eternal purpose and that we have this undeniable access well so what Eric well so what, just right where we started so don't lose heart don't lose heart worship team you can come up we're going to close here's what I want to ask you this morning as we close very simple what is causing you to lose heart what is causing you to lose heart in this season of your life? What is it for you? What is causing you to lose heart? Is it all the chaos of these other stories that the news is constantly giving us, that the media is constantly giving us? And part of it's true, it's going on, we know it's out there. Is it personal pain? Is it frustration with another individual? Is it that you think that God has forgotten about you? Is it that you think that he should have done something else rather than what he's done in your life? Don't lose heart. Do not lose heart. Take heart. Jesus said in John chapter 16, the night, just, just, just a few hours before he was arrested. He said, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have much trouble. <laughs> Thanks, <laughs> it's real encouraging. You will have much trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Folks, that is true this morning, right now, for you, right where you sit. He has overcome the world. We have not, but He has, and we are overcomers in Him as we simply trust Him. So trust Him. Let's pray. Father, Father, I pray that no one would leave here this morning losing heart, I pray, Father, that as we stand and as we sing this last song, and even right now, Lord, where they sit by faith, that they would declare that they trust you and that they would believe that you are working your plan for your purposes by your power and that we have access to you through prayer. Lord, I pray that you would make us a church that does not lose heart. You have not called us to this. You have not called us to be hopeless. You have not called us to be endlessly discouraged and frustrated in the same way as those who do not know you. Father, I pray that we would be able to stand, to take heart for your honor and for your glory. We love you and we thank you for your word. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.